Today on Basic, the host of Full Frontal with Samantha B. Samantha B. You know, when you join any well-functioning machine, nobody really has time to go. Oh, you're. N- Let me show you every aspect of this job. It was very much like you're going to South Dakota tomorrow. Pack a bag. My first ever convention moment was going up to Tucker Carlson and saying, who'd you have to blow to get in here? And he went, who'd you have to blow to get in here? We walked away from each other and I was like, oh, well, enemies for life. We were ready to jump. I had been at The Daily Show for 12 years. They offered me the opportunity to do my own show in this space. And I said, yes, I will do that. Thank you. You know, I learned my way of working from John, who's a total control freak. And then I'm also a control freak. And so <laughs> it's a really well-suited to control freaks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Basic. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive. And today, we'll be playing both the U.S. and Canadian national anthems. And I'm Jen Cheney, a TV critic at Vulture in New York Magazine, and I'm always in favor of Full Frontal. Basic is the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable TV. Our guest today is Sam B., host of Full Frontal with Samantha B. on TBS. Of course, as everybody knows, Sam was a longtime correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. But in 2016, she left to do her own show, making her one of the few women to join the traditionally male-dominated late-night comedy game. Stay with us after the interview as Jen and I break it all down. But first, here's our interview with Samantha B. Samantha B, we are so excited to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. This is delightful already. So we ask all of our guests the same first question, yes. which is, do okay. you remember when you first got cable television and what you thought of it? And since you were growing up in Canada, I assume it would have been Canadian mm-hmm. cable. Canadian cable television, which is very close to American cable television. Like, you know, we have our Canadian affiliates of the U.S. broadcasting system, but we got all the same shows. You know what? I don't remember ever not having cable. So I think we always had cable forever. That means you're a young person. Well, I'm not exactly young. I do also remember having a like a channel changer that was literally called a converter that was wired to your television. And it was a big brown box with buttons that you had to punch. So I'm not exactly young. I still Mm -hmm. sometimes call it a converter. (laughs) Much music or MTV, Sam? Oh, I was much music. I was much music. music. Yeah, I was definitely much music. For those of you who may not know, much music was the Canadian version of MTV, right? And it was great. And it was great. It was very, very good. It was very good. Well, they were playing music long after MTV stopped, which is what everybody used to say about much music. It was like, well, at least they still play music. That's right. That's true. So I read somewhere Mm -hmm. on your wiki that... You started in a live action production of Sailor Moon in the in the in the title in the title role. I did. Isn't that something to behold? I'm so proud of those days. It was yeah, it was like uh it was a bona fide theater job. It's where I met Jason. That's how I met my husband doing touring a children's show, live action performance of an episode of Sailor Moon. It's okay because we also sang unlicensed Beach Boys songs. It was not (laughs) accurate to the show (laughs) in any way, but we would travel all across. I mean, we lived in Toronto, so we traveled all across Ontario, Canada, doing this literal travesty of a show. And that's how we met and got to know each other and grew to love each other through mutual shame. (laughs) (laughs) So at, at what point did you decide to come to the States? Was that always the plan or how did you decide to do You that? have to talk to Doug about that because, I mean, I literally got the job at The Daily Show. So it wasn't a decision that 
I made, it was the decision that The Daily Show made to offer me a job, actually. So I was, wor- I mean, I worked quite a bit in Canada and I was doing lots of comedy and stuff like that. But really, it was the opportunity of a lifetime to audition for the show and miraculously got the job. And then, then it was the issue of getting paperwork. And that took, uh, that took a while, but I got it. And then I inserted myself into all of your lives. <laughs> I, I infiltrated your systems. And now I'm a bona fide citizen and have, you know, anchor babies and stuff. So you can't get rid of me. So are you a dual citizen? I am a dual citizen. Right. That's a smart move. You just, you want to keep your options open. I'm just saying. You know what? More so now than ever. Yes. Truly. <laughs> yeah. I had no regrets about keep, keeping it dual. Mm-hmm. What was the, uh, was there an audition process? Did you have to send it a tape? Uh, was it, do you, do you remember anything about that, uh, that time? I do. Yeah, I remember vividly, actually, because it was my favorite show. It was a show that, well, Jason and I, we got married in Canada in 2001. And it was the only show that we really made an appointment to watch together. Like we had a little, we didn't watch that much TV, actually, for people who are working in television. But that was the one show that we watched every day. So I knew it really well. And then they had been looking for a woman for a a super long time. I don't know. There, I think there are lots of great women in the States, but it worked to my benefit because they decided that they had to come to Canada and they had to see people from Second City. And I was not at Second City, but all the agents knew each other and they were like, <laughs> it was literally like, they're here to see the women of Second City, but they need more women to round out the day. So can you just like jump in there and do an audition? It was on a Saturday. And I was, <laughs> I was like, I will commit to this as though it is the only... <laughs> opportunity I will ever see again. And I knew the show really well. Nobody else knew it because it was kind of a niche product in Canada at the time. Was that like the 2000 and whatever it was, two, three version of diversity? Let's look in Canada. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's see, exactly. Let's see if we can find some Canadians. Let's see what we can, let's see what we can root out. <laughs> so when you came on board, you were joining a cast of existing correspondents, Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert. I was. And I believe you were the only woman. Mm-hmm. What, what was that like being the only woman? How did the sort of existing correspondents treat you when you joined the staff? They were great. I mean, they were great. They were, listen, it was like, um, you know, when you join any really well-functioning machine, there's nobody, you know, it's a daily show. There's a tremendous amount of content to create per week. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like a lot of content to produce. So nobody really has time to go, Oh, you're. Let me just show you. Let me show you every aspect of this job. It was very much like, get in, let's do it. You're going to South Dakota tomorrow. Pack a bag. <laughs> Did you bring your suitcase? Oh, you didn't know you had to. Well, you have to go home and get your stuff. So it was super intimidating for sure. It was really intimidating. Um, but I, I found my stride. It was. It was just. I kind of like put my fear on the back burner. These were people that I admired. It's very hard to come into an environment where you're like, oh, I consider you to be the lords of comedy. Now, suddenly you go from being a viewer of a show to being a colleague of all of these people you've watched for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Very intimidating, but they were all very welcoming and nice. It's just that no one really had time to go like, let me teach you everything that you need to do on this job. You kind of have to figure it out. It's like, it was very sink or swim. For good reason, there really was no, there's no way to explain what the job is as I was doing it in that era because so much of it is found. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a fast moving train, right? You just have to jump yeah. on and there's no time to even look back. Yeah. You're always moving forward, right? And so to get oh, disgruntled exactly. or upset about something, it's like, well, I've got another shot tomorrow, right? 
Well, that's exactly it. And that really was always John's attitude was like, we really, we didn't, we never really celebrated our victories all that hard. We were never like, look at us. So just like pat ourselves on the back a bit because the next day there was another show and it could be a real failure. <laughs> so it was like, you had numerous opportunities to be funny, but sometimes it really didn't work out. And so you, you didn't really dwell on your failures and you also didn't really celebrate your success. It was very much like, let's go, let's go, let's go. Were you more self-conscious of being the only woman or the only Canadian? Uh, <laughs> those are both stunning handicaps. Um, <laughs> I, I think I was really, there was so much fear. <laughs> I can't really, I don't want to put it in any one lane more than the other. I think it was just like, please be funny. Like, just be funny in this conversation. You know, you enter a room, there's like 12 people sitting on a big giant u-shaped sofa you want to be funny you want to make a joke that makes everybody laugh it's like you want to make john laugh you want to make the producers laugh you want to be like bright and cheerful and not a problem you know that's like it's a very it's like gidget i'm like really <laughs> describing <laughs> like a can-do attitude but also very funny like go out in the field no pressure bring home some gold go get some gems leave it all on the floor and come home and then sort through your, you know, all the mistakes you made and try to make some comedy with it. So I think it wasn't, I can't really attribute it to one thing in particular, although I will say it was, to your question, very hard to discern the American system mm. for a Canadian. That actually was like, this may come as a surprise to you, a group of Americans, but we don't like forensically understand your political system naturally like we didn't we're not steeped in it we're steeped in our own system so you had to like oh you're like how many senators are there like what what's the whole how does that work exactly like you think you know but you know we came right into like a political season so i had to learn really fast mm -hmm. well wikipedia a lot most americans <laughs> don't know either so you know that is true really fit in. that is true thank you <laughs> thank you Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. To the point you were just making, you know, the Indecision 2004 coverage was like a big turning point for The Daily Show. Mm -hmm. It was. And I believe it was a turning point for you too, as a correspondent. What do you remember about covering the conventions that year and kind of finding your footing through that process? Well, I really remember, I mean, obviously had never been to a political convention before and never would have expected to in my whole life. So I do remember the sensation of walking into the big arena in Boston. I think that Boston was the first one that I went to, but I could be wrong about it. It was like Boston and Philly. That sounds right, yeah. Anyways, it was like a huge convention center. And this is such a stupid story, but like, so you go in, you get a pass. It's like a whole thing. Security lines were huge. I just had no idea what to expect. I think I wore high heels, which was a total mistake, but <laughs> I didn't really realize. I didn't really understand at the time. So you go through these huge security lines, you're in this massive stadium. I'm like, what the fuck is this process? What is happening? I'm there with a producer and a cameraman and a sound guy and I think a writer or two. At the time, they would send out a writer or two with you to just like juice it or like give you some joke ideas on the fly. And the first person we saw standing there was Tucker Carlson. (laughs) (laughs) And they were like, Oh my God, I feel like it was like Jason Ross. It was like, you should go up to him and you should be like, who'd you have to blow to get in here? And I was like, all right, get the camera ready. (laughs) And I did that. That was like my first ever convention moment was going up to Tucker Carlson and saying, who'd you have to blow to get in here? And he went, who'd you have to blow to get in here? And then we had a little fight. And then we walked away from each other and I was like, oh, well, enemies for life. (laughs) (laughs) Enemies for life. What a terrible human being. That was the right impulse. Yeah, totally. Yeah, never look back. Both Doug and I were at the Mark Twain Prize ceremony a few weeks ago. Uh And you and some of the other Daily Show alums were talking about how stressful some of the remote interviews could be. Mm -hmm. Can you remember some of the more uncomfortable interview situations you found yourself in? Well, I mean, (laughs) it's actually so funny to think about making television this way. But I will say that when I started there for many years, we only had one camera. The show could only afford to send a producer out with a correspondent and one camera. Mm -hmm. So you would interview a person with the camera on them and, you know, capture all their moments. And then you would have to do it again. Mm. So you would, you have to turn the whole thing around and do it all over again and re-ask all of those terrible questions again with them having just a greater consciousness, like a, a much deeper awareness of what, you know, because the mind relaxes when the camera's not on you. When the camera's on you, you're like, you know, these, mostly we talk to people who are not super media savvy, you know, at the beginning of my tenure there. And so they were very caught by the lens, you know, so you would ask all your questions. But when they got to really hear the questions the second time around, as you were delivering them, Mm -hmm. it was very eye-opening for people. They were like, I see what you're doing. Like, oh, I get the 
game that you're playing with me or I see what you meant when you asked the question was different from what I thought you meant. And I would have been more guarded if I thought you were trying to get me to say my actual opinions that I'm now realizing are bad (laughs) and I'm going to come across poorly, (laughs) even though they're my true and stated opinions. So much has been written about The Daily Show and late night in general over the years Mm -hmm. about its lack of visible and gender diversity. Sure, You certainly have done your part to change and evolve that. But do you think it's changing overall? I mean, sort of. Like, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Not enough, maybe? (laughs) Not enough. I mean, it's, yeah, I don't think that because... I have a show and like Amber has a show and Z-Way has a show that we've done all the work that needs to be done. I think, you know, what's funny. And I mean, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you, Doug, but like my husband and I were always pitching shows. We were always like, oh, we're going to pitch scripted show here. We were always kind of like writing scripts or selling pilots and stuff. We were really busy, yeah. you know, always kind of like paddling. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I wanted to do it's like a field piece show. I wanted to do Something in the vein, but not exactly, not The Daily Show. And I do remember taking it out and people were like, why would we do another show of political comedy? Like, we have one. (laughs) So the feedback was, we have one already. Why would we need to ever do that again? And so the field is really, people's imaginations have grown. But I think it's true that the more perspectives you have out there, this is a valuable thing. Well, the genre has grown. The genre has grown. I mean, you guys in The Daily Show made (laughs) politics, you know, the center of a comedy show every night, which was not something anybody had really done before. And now there's clearly a few people doing it, but all with completely different point of views and come at it a different way. And there's room for all of them. And the audience clearly wants all of them. And more. And look at what we've done. We've solved all the world's problems. And that, I think, is our main accomplishment. Good for us. The world has never been in a better place. The world has never been better. Well, you're welcome. (laughs) That's my gift (laughs) to the world. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about your decision to leave The Daily Show? I mean, obviously, you you felt like you wanted to do something on your own. Mm -hmm. But was that a hard decision to make? Like, did it just feel like it was the right time? Well, you know, again, so many of your your decisions are kind of prompted by someone else offering you a job. (laughs) You know, but my husband and I, we knew that the next job that we wanted to do would have our names as creators. We wanted to create something that was ours. Mm -hmm. We wanted to transition and become producers in our own right. And so we had been really out there and to great success. And it was like, it had been, our partnership was great. Our writing partnership was great. Uh, We were very busy. And so we wrote a pilot script for TBS called The Detour and they picked it up. They greenlit the show. So we were transitioning to scripted. We were like, this is great. You know, I had been at The Daily Show for 12 years and he had been there. He followed, a, he was a couple of years after me, but he had been there. Like 10? I think that he, at 10 years and yeah. he has shot more pieces than anybody. Like I think that actually he breaks a few Daily Show records too. So our time there was incredible, but all of these different things kind of converged. So John announced he was leaving. Our show got greenlit. And so we just knew that it was time to leave. So we always planned to leave. Listen, we're pragmatic Canadian people working in entertainment. You're not going to leave a good job to just go float around and hope somebody likes you. Like, you know, you jump from thing to thing. So we were ready to, we were ready to jump. And then within that jump, they also offered me the opportunity to do my own show in this space. And I said, yes, I will do that. Thank you. And then 
five months of worrying. And then we actually started to make the show. So it was, it was really was an incredible opportunity, but they really had a lot of belief. It was lovely. Yeah. What was the most surprising thing for you when you started to run your own show and now being the host, the star, the executive producer, hmm. you know, big, big role change from Correspondent on the Daily Show, I would imagine. Big role change. Well, I mean, this is the most, this is like not a super sexy answer, but it is the true answer, which is that you don't really realize how much of your job is management, management of people and product and marketing. And there's just so much stuff that goes into getting from a great idea inside yours or someone else's head. There's so much that goes into taking that idea and actually making it real and realizing that idea and actually getting to the point where you produce it and actually getting to the point where it gets to air. So that was, that really was daunting. That was a really steep learning curve. It took me a really long time to get really comfortable wearing all those hats to really feel comfortable in my own decision-making capabilities. It's like you just floor the pedal. And no matter whose decision it was or like you're ultimately responsible when your name is on it and you are the host of it, it yeah. is ultimately your responsibility. It is yours and yours alone. Everything that comes out of your mouth, the buck stops with you. Buck stops there. And you have to learn that you are responsible. Right. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. And accountable. To be totally accountable. Yeah. It's very. And all those people are counting on you in a million different ways. In a million different ways. You can't get sick. And you do, and you falter, and you like make mistakes. And you have to own your mistakes. You have to can't run from problems. You have to go right through your problems. It's very hard to learn that, and incredibly valuable. And it takes it takes a while. It's not instantaneous. You don't go from like I love to do sketch comedy to right. like now I work on a TV show with a really brilliant person running the whole thing to like suddenly you know how to do everything. Now let's create a marketing campaign for yourself. Like, you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So, you know, that's, it was a lot. It's the best kind of learning, really. Like I've really enjoyed it. I have really, really enjoyed it. And it has been really hard too. Yeah. And I think those two things are parallel. Well, I think people don't understand. You know, they see people like yourself in front of the camera every night and they just assume you roll into the studio five minutes before you go on, everybody For hands sure. you a script and they think that's how it goes. But For sure. I know that's not how it goes because you're there from minute one and you're probably the last right. person to leave. And I do think like, I think it does happen that way sometimes. Yeah, there are people like that. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, I learned my way of working from John, who's a total control freak. And then I'm also a control freak. And so <laughs> it's really well suited to control freaks, but you're always control, you know. Lots of control. There's a lot to control. There's a lot of levers. There's, it's pretty rare that you get to take a week break, but actually forget about your degree. You're kind of still working. You're kind of still jotting stuff down or having like little side conversations where you're like, I'm so sorry. I know it's a break week, but can we just quickly talk about that? Like, you're always doing something. Yep. Mm -hmm. Full Frontal debuted in early 2016. So you started mm -hmm. doing your own political comedy show just as Trump is coming into the into the picture in a more yeah. significant way. To what extent, mm -hmm. if at all, did it alter your approach to the show? Well, 
uh, you know, I think we were all kind of struggling to keep up. When we started the show, we definitely thought that the chaotic time was election season. We were like, oh, yeah, all this. <laughs> it's so busy all the time. All this electioneering is just can't wait until the election is over. And Hillary Clinton is, you know, she's going to be the president and she's definitely going to be imperfect. But we're still don't worry, everyone. We're still going to have content because she's not going to do everything the way we want her to do it. And we'll have lots of stuff to talk about with her. She'll be a flawed leader, etc. And then, <laughs> and then. That happened. <laughs> that happened. Yeah. And it was a really, the whole world was different. All of our lives and worlds were upended. So all of our goals of like more long-term storytelling were kind of out the window because the world just started to move even faster, like faster than ever. And actually, it's so funny because I, our shows this May, oh, we're going to do two shows on the subject of women's health. What the fuck women's health <laughs> is what we're calling it. And I just was going back through old pieces, like piece after piece after piece. And I was like, oh, look, we've been predicting the overturn of Roe since 2015. Isn't that nice? You did it when Kavanaugh was uh, confirmed, I think, right? Oh, we've been doing it. We did it since the beginning of the show. Like, you know, we've been seeing this on the on the table for a, for a really, really long time. Um, I think we were trying, we tried to figure out our approach for a really long time. It wasn't really clear. There wasn't enough time to really sit back and go, all right, how are we going to smoothly transition into Trump time? Because the minute he won, we all started getting like death threats and everything just exploded all around us. The day after he won, I had to go do the chit chat at Condé Nast with a big boardroom full of editors. <laughs> it was like some pre-planned event that was like, go women power. I can't remember what it was, but it was like, our whole issue is about our new president and go women. And, uh, it was a nightmare and we all sat there around this like beautiful boardroom table and they were like, help us. And I was like, I can't help you. Help me. And we were all just like <laughs> looking out the window, just <laughs> like the clouds rolled in and we were like, well, bye everyone. The sandwiches were great. I got nothing. I guess you have to go totally rework the next six months of your magazine. Right? Crazy. Yeah, I remember you mentioned a second ago that probably you especially were receiving death threats and things like that. And I remember mm -hmm. when I talked to you, not the White House Correspondents' Dinner, that you mentioned mm -hmm. you were kind of dialing back from social media because you just couldn't be like assaulted by that stuff constantly. I'm just wondering, have you start, yeah. have you maintained that? Have you kind of? Yeah. Yeah. I'm religious about it. Okay. I'm really, I really am religious about it because I don't need to like intake that stuff. That does not help you. I don't know how people do it, actually. I don't, I couldn't do my job if I was focused on that. I actually, I just couldn't. I, I Sam, be a human person, could not bifurcate my brain to accept what happens online and also function at my job and care for my kids. It was destroying me. It was like erode me from within. And also, you can't really crowdsource your material on the show. You can't be like, checking in with social media to see if everyone still likes you. Like, you can't do that. It's not, some people can, I cannot. So how do you approach each week's show? There's so much news, so much tough news to tackle. Mm -hmm. Most of it very difficult to find the humor in lately. So do you have a particular filter that you and your staff use to figure out what you're going to focus on or what's the process like? I think for the most part, 
it's a very open pitching process. But I do think that like the stories that we choose are guided by our interests. Sometimes we need something a little lighter fare just to keep our head above water. And sometimes we were ready to go there. It is an organic kind of process. And generally it is guided by how we're feeling, what we have planned and how we can kind of fit it all together as a whole. And we only have to do it once a week. So we do have a bit of, you know, there's the luxury of having a week to kind of get your brain wrapped around making 21 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty good schedule. Is the weekly format something that is more comfortable for you than say a nightly format like The Daily Show or? So far, that's the way it turned out. I sought it. I'm actually surprisingly not a super hot take person. I do kind of like to ruminate. I do kind of like to think. I like my life. I love my children. <laughs> I like to see them. I do a fair amount of being with them and in, in repose. So uh, it just kind of fit, you know, at the time that we launched this, it really just fit more into how I like to live. I mean, I love to work. I'm not afraid to work hard. I love it. But I also love my life. That's health. That's a healthy attitude. It's pretty darn, it's pretty healthy. I do yeah. actually seek to have a pretty balanced life. Go figure. We have a question we ask everybody before they go. Oh, okay. And that is, okay. what is your all-time yes. favorite basic cable show? And we will accept the Canadian one. Oh, all-time favorite basic cable. I no longer know what that means. Nobody does. Does that include? It's not Netflix. It's not It's, HBO, not, it's it? not that. Okay, all-time favorite, like real favorite, not like nostalgia favorite. It could be either. anything. It could be it could be from literally of all time. So whenever you I'm uh, say, okay, I'm saying it because I know exactly what it is. It's The Simpsons. It's The Simpsons. Does that count? Am I allowed to say that? Well, no, but wait, it might. Cable now, so we'll, well, we wait, count that. It's on basic cable but in, now. But in Canada, did you watch it through cable? Yeah. So oh, that's there you a cable go. show yeah. for her. There you go. Yeah. Another Canadian yeah. loophole. Canadian loophole. Successfully done by Sam B. Thank um, you. Sam B, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We loved having you. By the way, Full Frontal with Samantha B airs Thursday nights at 10 p.m. on yes. TBS. And also check out Sam's own podcast, Full Release, on your favorite Please. podcast player. Please do. Oh, thanks, everyone. Thank you, Sam. All right. Have a great day. So that was a great conversation with Samantha B. Uh, obviously, she's in a position that few people have been in and that she's one of the very few women who is in the late night talk show business as we discussed. And I think because of the format of her show, because she's a woman, you know, she's able to dig into issues like women's health and the abortion discussion that's going on with a perspective that I think is really, really relevant. No, super important. I mean, generally in late night, other than Sam B, you have a, you have a bunch of guys doing Roe v. Wade jokes, which is kind of horribly ironic in its own way, right? Mm -hmm. And for those of you listening, this podcast was recorded just after the time when those uh, potential Supreme Court decisions around uh, Roe v. Wade were leaked to the press. So that's what made it top of mind for both Samantha and Jen and myself. But uh, no, absolutely. And look, she's been on these issues for a long time, as she pointed out, going back to at least when Brett Kavanaugh was getting confirmed and even before. Right. And I mean, there are other women hosting shows. Sam mentioned, you know, Z-Way, whose who's show is very funny, and Amber Ruffin, who has a show on Peacock, and I think it might air really late on... I think she comes on after Seth Meyers, yeah. On after Seth Meyers, yeah. 
And that's great. But still, the sort of more high profile players are men for the most part. You know, the Jimmy's Colbert, Stephen Colbert, John Oliver, John Oliver. Yeah. It just seems like it's taking a really long time to even that out. Yeah, more. look, it's it was always a boys club. It's a little less of a boys club. Or it's a little less of not only a boys club, but just a white male boys club. That's changing slowly as well. I, I think the bigger question is, what's the future of late night? I mean, what do you think, Jen? You know, these, these shows don't seem in general nearly as relevant as they did certainly 10 years ago. The idea even of late night as a day part, you know, on a linear TV network also seems somewhat antiquated. Yeah, I mean, I think that's been the case for a while. All of these shows get their relevancy from how much people on the internet talk about them and share them, share segments from them. I mean, I, I feel like there are people who probably watch Sam or watch John Oliver through clips online more so than like sit down and, and turn on their TV and watch when they're airing, which is good. It keeps their names relevant. But in terms of people like at 1130 or 10 o'clock or whatever time going to their TV and watching it in the moment, I, I feel like people don't really do that anymore. Yeah, it's not a thing. So I wonder what will become of the late night genre five years from now and certainly 10 years from now. I don't think it'll look like it looks today, or at least it's hard to believe it will. I still think there will always be talk shows. There will always be, you know, political comedy shows because time is no longer relevant with TV. Like we probably won't call them late night anymore because nobody watches them late at night. Who stays up that late? (laughs) Well, my mother-in-law, but other than her, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. Do you you watch any of these shows live ever anymore? Sometimes I do, but lately not nearly as much as I used to. We didn't talk about this too much with Sam or at all. But when the pandemic started and all the late night show hosts had to pivot and start doing shows out of their houses, I found that really interesting. And I was watching that much more closely than I usually did, just because I wanted to see how they improvised. Uh, I mean, Sam was out in the woods, like chopping down trees and stuff. Yeah, I did the same thing. <laughs> Trevor Noah was in his apartment. Seth Meyers was in the attic of his country house or beach house. And Jimmy Kimmel was in the kitchen. That's right. There was something weirdly comforting about it during that crazy COVID season one, I think. Mm-hmm. But I haven't really gone back, honestly. I, I watch online like everybody else. Yeah. And I will watch like if there's a particular interview I'm interested in, but I don't normally tune in at 1130 or whatever time and watch as it's airing. Like music, say a Beatles or a Frank Sinatra or a Michael Jackson or whoever, I think it's really hard now and it will be hard in the future for a talk show host, a late night host to sort of permeate the zeitgeist like it used to. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. But at the same time, I still think there's a great appetite for stuff that is really funny and for really sharp and insightful political commentary. And so I do think there's always going to be some kind of a marketplace for that kind of content. Just how how we consume it is is probably what's going to be very different. Yeah, and th- yeah, I think that's right. And there'll be more of them that are going after more specific audiences than a big, broad, old-fashioned network TV audience. Mm-hmm. So, Well, I certainly hope that Sam B continues to be one of the voices that we're hearing from. And I I trust that she will for years to come, but I really enjoy hearing what she has to say and hearing her perspective. Yeah, me too. And speaking of the zeitgeist, we're permeating the zeitgeist right here on Basic every week, and we hope you'll join us next time. Thanks a lot. Basic is a Pantheon media production in partnership with Sirius XM, hosted by Jen Chaney and Doug Herzog, produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't Don't forget forget to follow the show so you you never never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 